believers in Bigfoot say Last week, we talked about a murder that hit a little close to home for my family. It was the murder of Pamela Mason, a kid in Manchester, New Hampshire, who was killed by Edward Coolidge. This week, we go into a family that was truly haunted by deaths and murders, the Paquettes. And we talk about a town where a lot of people decided to keep a secret, a secret that allowed a murderer to roam free. For decades. Join us on Dude Now. Hey, Shawnee. Hey, girl. You welcome. You ready? I'm you ready. ready and welcoming? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready and welcome. Dude Now. You are welcome for my participation. I want everyone to know we've decided that we've given up on trying to be a professional podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to hear a cat walking across the podcast desk. You're going to hear papers shuffling. You're probably going to hear Shawnee drink some vodka. So. It's seltzer water and vodka. It's not. It won't (laughs) be. Straight. It won't be a glug glug. It'll be more of sitting. No, it's a glug glug. I listen to him drink all our lives. And it's a glug glug. glug. like right out of the bottle. <laughs> You're only one step away. And this podcast might get you one step closer. It's disturbing, all right? One step closer to... Never mind. So there's a lot of trigger warnings on this podcast, and I'm not going to list them all because I don't do that, but you're listening to a true crime podcast. If you trigger easily, you may not want to listen. You do not want to listen to this one. All right, so. I mean, I might trigger you myself. (laughs) Sean's capable of triggering everybody. So... This is going to be bad. All right. So Danny Paquette, ready? Yeah. We're entering the podcast land, okay. right? I want you to imagine New Hampshire. What yeah. do you think of when you think of New Hampshire? How many people can you offend right now? I don't No, I was just going to say pine trees, honestly, even though Maine's a pine tree state. But for New Hampshire, for some reason, I think of pine trees. It's and, the granite state, man. Yeah, whatever. Oh, no. Our cat's going to step on the keyboard. Damn it. All right. So... Granite. It's New Hampshire. It's an elite. It's taken for granite. It's taken for granted. I want you to imagine. Imagine. Okay. You started it. Uh, All right. right, So here on out, we're professional. So professional. So I want you. Maybe this podcast will do better than our other episodes because we've given up. All right, so I want you to imagine New Hampshire in the late 1980s. <laughs> Everybody's got some so big like hair. The, it's like the early 70s then. It's like the early 70s for Florida. Yeah. New Hampshire in the late 80s, right? Just like me. We're like pretending we've got gangs going on. It's like a very exciting place, right? Yeah. So there's a guy, and his name is Danny Paquette, and he's a rugged New Hampshire guy. Born January 4th, 1949. That's the same year as one of my ex-husbands. No way! <laughs> really? He was older. I forgot. Oh my... He was like... <laughs> the Undertaker already had a needle in his arm and carried me. It was a mistake. It was a mistake. <laughs> it 
<laughs> he was only in his 50s then. <laughs> I was just very young. All right. So anyways. She's married for money. I did not. <laughs> or else when we divorced, I would have tried to get some. Well, like, you're just a kind person who hates conflict. I took nothing when we got That's divorced. Right. Except health insurance for a year. Anyway. America. So. <laughs> Back to Danny Paquette. Danny Paquette grew up on a dairy farm in Manchester, New Hampshire, which yeah. is like right next to where That's I like a grew up. Sign in and of itself, just being grown up on a dairy farm in Manchester, New Hampshire. No, just growing up on a dairy farm. My nana was growing up on a dairy farm. I mean, from the day you're born, you're pulling on boobies. It's just a bad song. Once you hear this story, that is the most inappropriate comment. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, ever oh made. Jesus. To everyone listening, I Sean do does know not know about anything about this story. Ahead of time. So just. Carrie doesn't share her give him, research. Give him a free pass on that one. Oh, wow. All right. So he grew up on a dairy farm in Manchester, yeah. New Hampshire, right down Brown Ave. And if you listened last <laughs> week. Brown ass. On the podcast. It's like a streak in your underwear, brown ass. We're never going to get through this story. No, um, we're not. <laughs> okay, so basically, this is going to end up being a two-parter again. Because <laughs> we're going to be like, Cause I won't shut streak up. down your underwear. Let's say something else inappropriate. <laughs> Just roll. I'm trying to. Okay, so that's our dog. So, anyways. Brown Avenue, if you listened last week, is right down the street from where my Nana and my mom worked at a dental supply company. Really? And right down the street from where my great uncle had his trucking company. Yeah, they worked in a murderous neighborhood. Fulton Trucking. And where he employed my uncle and my grandfather and my dad for different lengths of time because they were all a little ornery, except my dad, who was the nicest, kindest human being ever. And anyways... This is the area, right? It's a vaguely industrial area that moves out into farm. And at the time, it moved out into... Um, Lightly populated suburbs, like more, more rural. Yeah, you couldn't yeah. even call it a suburb back then. And there was right. an airport. But it was close enough to commute to the... Yeah, oh yeah. And there's an airport up there. It was At that time, it was called Grenier Field, but it's the Manchester... Boston Airport oh, for yeah? some reason now. And it's a great place to fly out of. Plug well, yet no sponsorship. Sometimes. It's lovely and the parking's easy. Okay, so um anyways, Danny Paquette's dad is Arthur, his mom is Rena, and he had a bunch of siblings, including an older brother, Victor. Danny is the youngest of six. And to give you a little historical Were they all boys? No. Okay. And to give you a little historical stuff, Alan Shepard, the first American in space, yeah, like he like started flying over at Grenier Field because he was from Manchester. Oh. Okay, yes. So, Jesus. what? Nothing. You just Jesus. I know. All right. That wasn't really relevant to the story. <laughs> okay. I mean, it was because Grenier Fort Field was turned into Manchester, Boston, Boston Airport, or whatever it's Manchester called. Manchester hyphen Boston. Yeah. All right. All right, ready? Mm -hmm. So the Paquette family instilled a pretty big worth ethic into Danny, and he liked to stay busy as a kid. He also liked the ladies and allegedly was quite a charmer back in the 1980s. And one of his girlfriends, Ruth, 
She was a Pennsylvania lady, just new to the Granite State, and she had two sons. But she liked to stay overnight. Where? At, at Danny's? Oh, at Danny's, right? Bang. Yes. Um, <laughs> they had their issues, as many a couple did. Yeah. And allegedly, Danny really liked to have sex. <laughs> I told you. I know. A lot. Yeah. And she tried to keep up. But her two sons, because she had two sons who were still not adults yet, they did not think Danny was the shiznet. And they <laughs> thought that their mom was, right? Because right. understandable, like sure. their sons, right? She raised them by herself, right? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And so. yeah, and he and one of the sons, like, that's our dog scratching. This story makes her itchy. He and one of her sons had a brawl, right? Really? You want to hear it? Well, how so old this, was her son? Well, wait. He's a teenager. And, the, and then he's like an adult, right? Yeah, he's a grown-up. It's the 80s. Well, that's like, and he was born in 1949. Right there, he's going to fight a teenager. Well, yes. So this is from an excerpt from Our Little Secret yeah. by Kevin Flynn and Rebecca Lavoie. And I'm reading this because it gives really good narrative story and detail yeah um, but there are swear words in it so be warned and also doggy scratching make the dog not itch on you know what i said put her in a kennel no, I, I, I didn't want to put her in a kennel because she's so cute all right whoa that's the sound of velcro all right, so ready? That was my pants coming off. <laughs> my stripper pants. We told you this is not a safer work podcast. All right, ready? Excerpt. So the name of one of her kids, not excerpt yet, is Mark. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she has another little kid named Hal, right? Mm-hmm. So one time, um, Vincent, Danny's older brother, called his friend Mark. And asked him to go to Danny's house to pick up the little brother, Hal. Their mother was there, but she was drunk. So Mark, the kid, pulls into the driveway, honks for Hal, hoping to get out without encountering Paquette. Hey, asshole, Danny called to Mark. Before you leave, put the goddamn lug nuts on your mother's car. (laughs) He waved a fist at the kid. He had likely been drinking himself, along with Ruth. Kiss my ass, Mark told him. Mark, Mark. His mother came out of the house and staggered into the car. I'm sorry, not into the car, but to the car. Will you go to the store and get me some more Daniel Boone? Do you know what that is? No. It's it's probably Boone's farm. Yeah, it might be. What? He didn't want to go on a booze run, and he certainly didn't want to come back to the pocket place once he left. But he also didn't want to make make things worse. Which is so sad because it's like such a truth of when you're a kid and your parents are either abusive or they drink too Mm -hmm. much, you know? Mm -hmm. And he goes, okay, mom, I'll do it. But suddenly, Danny, pocket, put his foot on the driver's side door and punched Mark through the open window. The young man struggled with the door but couldn't open it. Danny hit him four times in the face, knocking his glasses off. Ruth yelled at the two of them, trying to get Danny away from the car. When he finally backed off, Mark was able to open the door. He got out of the car and moved right to Danny, then socked him once in the nose, hard. Beneath his fist, Mark felt the small bones in Danny's nose break and a torrent of blood start to flow. Danny Danny grabbed Mark's keys 
and threw them into the tall grass. I'm going to teach your kid a lesson, he told Ruth. Hal, Ruth, and Mark all scrounged in the bush brush for the keys. Danny put a ladder up against the side of the house and climbed up to the roof for a better view of the search. As soon as he was at the top, Mark ran for the ladder and pulled it away, <laughs> stranding him on the roof. The young man had some trouble controlling the cumbersome ladder, and it smashed a window on its way down. As Danny shimmered down the side of the house, Mark and Hal found their keys, got into their car, and started to pull away. Danny picked up a steel bolt that he had found on the ground and threw it at the retreating car, shattering the back windshield. The fight left Danny Paquette with a broken nose and two black eyes. He called the police not to file a report against Mark, but to throw a drunken Ruth out of his house. <laughs> About five weeks later, Ruth and Danny set their differences aside and started dating again. None of Ruth's boys approved. I'm sure they didn't. Right? So, like... Danny Paquette sounds like a real asshole. Well, you know, he's dead, so we can't say for sure. But that didn't sound very nice or fun, right? So, Danny, you know, at this time, he's living in Hooksit, New Hampshire, which is right next to Manchester. Yeah. And Ruth and he are obviously off and on and off and on again, right? Yeah. And she spends the night, November 8th, 1985, at his house. But her boys do not... Ooh, surprise, surprise. No joke. Um, the next day, they say goodbye, and Danny smacks her on the ass. Because I guess that's how Danny says goodbye. That's how I say goodbye uh, Yeah, I know. Maybe you should find a different way to say goodbye. All right. I got one in mind, but I won't say it on the air. Okay. So, any, and you're not going to do it, whatever it is. You're <laughs> not allowed. So, anyway, Danny's got guys coming over and has welding jobs to do. And one of those guys, Richard Duarte is working on a 1954 Ford in Danny's garage. Danny's place is pretty spread out, just like the farm he grew up on. He has a barn, a pretty big garage, the works. And Richard starts working, and these Canadian guys stop by, and Danny wells things for him. Danny, apparently, is a really fantastic, pretty brilliant welder. It seem that way. So, this kid... Also comes by Court Burton. He's 17 and he helps Danny with some jobs. He's basically like an apprentice. Yeah. And Danny wants to help have him help him weld the plate onto a bulldozer. Did you catch all that? I did. Out in the yard. Okay. And it's next to an outbuilding. And then he's like, yeah, maybe you can mix some paint. So to give a little detail here, Danny's yard is basically a depository for cars and metal. Right. Organized, and not quite to that hoarder level, but not something neighbors are going to be into seeing next to their pretty green grass <laughs> and their perfect shrubs. Right. And the bulldozer is about 300 yards from the woods. Wow, that was a bump, like, on perfect timing. Ooh. So Richard's still in the garage, right? He's trying to fix the Ford's brake. Right. And then he hears this crack. And it's a noise that reminds him, and he's a Vietnam veteran, mm -hmm. of an M2 carbine shot. Okay. Or maybe like the sound of a helmet hitting a rock. Okay. And he freezes for a second and he heads outside. Court meets him at the door and tells him that something has happened to Danny. Danny is not quite right. So Richard goes outside and there's Danny's helmet just sort of rolling across the dirt or grass. His welding helmet? Yes, his okay. welding helmet. And next he sees Danny 
He's on his back, his arms stretch out to either side, leather gloves still on his hands. Mm -hmm. Near him, the welding torch is running, but he's not holding it anymore. Richard's first thought is that Danny electrocuted himself. He tries to pick him up by his legs to move him away from the torch and the bulldozer, and he yells for court to help him, right? Right. So you got to imagine it's pretty panicky. Yeah. So back then, there was no magical 911 system everywhere. And in New Hampshire, we all had, like, the police and the fire department numbers either memorized or posted on our fridges. Right. Or both. And I'm not sure how it worked for court or if he just dialed zero for an operator and tried to get connected, but he is in the house trying to get help. Richard starts doing CPR on Danny. He waits for court. He keeps doing CPR. He keeps waiting for court. He sees a neighbor, Kevin Cody, heading to his mailbox and he yells at him for help, right? Because mm-hmm. he's all alone out here with Danny, who's not moving. So Kevin has his wife call the fire department and he rushes across the road to help. He sees a torch. He worries about getting electrocuted and they stop the generator, take out the cables and go back to Danny. They try CPR again and Richard's doing chest compressions when he realizes that Danny is wet. This, of course, makes no sense if he's electrocuted, right? So they grab... (laughs) Well, it kind of makes sense if he's electrocuted. Well, to them, it didn't make sense. Right. So they're like, okay, he has a wound. And so, like, they open up his shirt and they see, like, a wound there. Oh, like, bloody? Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh. And so they grab some plaster of Paris because it's the only thing they have quickly. Yeah. I guess they didn't want to use their clothes. And they try to patch up the wound by smearing plaster of Paris all over his chest and his yeah. stomach. So Court finally gets back. And he's like, help's coming. And like, finally. And uh, Richard hears the sound of sirens that belong to the Hooks at Fire Rescue crew, right? right? And those guys get there, and then the police get there. And when they lift Danny up, there's, a, there's blood. It's yeah. just like puddling under where his body was. So he wasn't electrocuted. He was shot? Yes. What? He, and one shot, took him out. It made an entrance hole above his nipples, pretty much in the center, and the exit wound was higher and to the right of his spine. Okay. So a little bit later, almost everyone in Hooksit's six-member police department are at Danny's yard, off the Whitehall Road, looking for evidence. The bullet had passed through Danny's body, and it wasn't in the ambulance. They're like, well, maybe it fell out in the ambulance, right? right? But it definitely wasn't there, and they wanted it for evidence. But that wasn't the only thing that they were looking for. They were looking for a killer, right? Yeah. So um, on Danny's property, very quickly people say, you know, Ruth's kids hate this guy. Right. Um, And so they're like, oh, okay, we'll look into that. But as they're like looking at everything, on Danny's property hanging from a tree is a pie plate with the bottom cut out Mm -hmm. and it had the ace of spades on it Mm -hmm. which is known as the do you know no death card so that's got nothing to do with nothing but is a (laughs) but it's freaking weird right can you imagine being a cop and you're like there's the ace of spades hanging from a tree so as our little tidbit of life lesson advice hashtag be well don't hang 
the death card on your property. <laughs> in your own yard. No. So now I want to go back a little bit in time. Okay. To Rena Paquette. So if you remember that other podcast I was referencing about Edward Coolidge. Yeah. We talk about Danny's mom, Rena Paquette. She and his dad, Arthur Sr., had a farm at the end of Brown Ave. It's down the street, again, from where all my relatives worked, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's also where a murderer, Ed Coolidge, talked to my mom in her car. Right. So, Rena, Danny's mom, she worked sometimes, she knew a lady who worked in the laundromat nearby. And in that laundromat, Pamela Mason, the girl who Ed killed, posted babysitting notices and it was a notice that the police believe led him to her mm-hmm. the other person um and ed's mom some reports say she actually worked in that laundromat too oh really but not all the reports say that so okay. i'm not i can't verify that for sure so rena as we know from the other podcast calls the police says she knows who raped and murdered pam that little 14 year old honor student cutie who put up the babysitting flyer in the laundromat and she tells arthur her husband that she knows she tells everyone that she knows who did it Mm -hmm. and nobody really listens not enough to make a real police report and the morning after ed is released from questioning but scheduled to be in court for a case of alleged theft from his employer danny wakes up late and his mom is nowhere he's the only one home he calls for help and he goes looking with another relative, and eventually they see smoke down a road a ways where they keep the pigs, right? Mm-hmm. They don't keep them close because pigs are smelly. Um, and, um, and they get to a barn, and it's on fire, and inside is his mom, right? Really? Yeah, and there's a really good thing before that, um, when she's trying to tell everyone about yeah. it, that's detailed in our little secret again. And here's another ep- excerpt. And, like, she's trying to, um, Rena's trying to convince. Um, so, in it, this it says, During school hours, Rena Puckett, Danny, and Victor's mother worked in the laundrorama where Pamela Mason had hung her advertisement. Like everyone else in Manchester, she'd become drawn to the case, following the stories in the papers and looking at the babysitting ad on the wall with a mixture of trepidation and sorrow. Mm-hmm. I think I know who did it, Rena told her husband at dinner one night after he finished the chores on their farm. The killer's mother told me. The fork clanged hard on the dinner stoneware. A moment of silence hung in the ware. What in God's name are you talking about, Rena? I got a call from her today. Arthur asked the woman's name. It was a name he knew, someone from her work, but not someone Rena was particularly close with. Why did she call you? I'm not sure, Rena paused. She knows her son did it. I don't think she can bring herself to turn him in. I think she wants someone else to do it for her. No, Arthur said. I mean, why did she call you? Rena pursed her mouth, afraid to speak. Because he killed one of the girls, she said, in our pigsty. That's ridiculous, Arthur said. I don't want you getting involved. Rena knew the tone in his voice meant that was to be the end of the subject. But it wasn't the end of the phone calls Rena received at home from the suspect's mother. Her pleas seemed very compelling. There was so much reverence for Pamela Mason at the Landorama. No one would take the babysitting ad off the wall. Each time people saw it, their blood boiled anew. Each time Rena Paquette saw it, she thought of the telephone caller's son. Rena called the Manchester police and talked to an officer who had been fielding hundreds of calls about the Pamela Mason case. She explained what she knew and felt unburdened after passing the information on to the authorities. 
That weekend, a pair of Manchester police detectives came to the pocket farm on Brown Ave and asked to speak to Rena. Arthur looked disapprovingly at his wife before leaving them to talk in the living room. Rena told the detectives what she believed, that Pamela Mason's killer was a man named Edward Coolidge, a baking delivery driver, a man of about 25 years old with a wife and a baby daughter. He had also known violent tendencies and was unaccounted for at the time of Pamela's murder. Rena told them this information had come to her from Coolidge's mother, who was also the owner of the Lundorama, and therefore Rena Puckett's boss. Edward Coolidge had come to, into the business to visit his mother. He'd seen Pamela's babysitting ad and copied down the contact information. The detectives thanked Mrs. Puckett and left the farm. So that's from the excerpt from that right. story, right? Yeah. So it's February 3rd. Danny goes with his uncle. They find his mom mm-hmm. in the pigsty slash barn, and it's on fire, and she's dead. And the report says it's suicide. Danny doesn't believe it. She's obviously murdered, he believes. And to be fair, the barn was, as we learned in the last podcast, barricaded from the outside. Now, this is before Coolidge is locked up and goes away, right? Right, but it's the same day, and most people say he couldn't have done it. Like, it was not enough. Not most people, but a lot of people theorize that he couldn't have gotten there and back in time because of when he was in jail for the robbery. Right. He gets out on bail. Yeah. And then he has to go report again in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So most people think, not most, but some people think that there's no way he could have done it was the t- theory at the time. Okay. That was my vodka. Just kidding. All right. So, <clears throat> um, so... Most people isn't really accurate. Some people think that. Danny and his entire family do not believe his mom was murdered. They, like, just obsess about it as you would, right? I mean, they all think that she did not commit suicide. They all think that she was definitely murdered. Sorry for misspeaking. And, like... And you have to talk so much more than you. It's not fair. I'm gonna mess up. I was really confused. All right, they think they're like horrified because they are absolutely sure their very Catholic mom, who's planning a second honeymoon, was not freaking suicidal, right? And as Lisa Marie Fakwa writes, as he grew up without his mother, Danny's life always seemed hard. He eventually got married, then became a parent himself, but it was bittersweet when the marriage ended in divorce and he lost his lengthy custody battle. So, Danny grows up with this haunting him, right? Right. He eventually, like, after being apart, he gets married, he gets divorced. After being apart from his children for so long, he has a mental breakdown and he goes to his ex-wife's house and demands to see his children. She calls the authorities and they arrest him. He is landing. He ends up in a psychiatric hospital. He's ordered to undergo treatment during a hypnosis session. Danny actually says that he remembers that he saw his mom arguing with a delivery man the day she was killed. And he claimed that the man was Edward Coolidge. However, Coolidge probably wouldn't have been in his work clothes that day since he was questioned until three, allegedly, at the police department. He could have been wearing them from the get-go. And due to be in court that morning. But memory is a tricky thing, right? We all know that right. from our podcast about my potential Bigfoot encounter. But and Danny's messed up marriage was to a neighbor named Denise Messier. 
They'd been in love in high school. They split up when she got pregnant. Her dad was a cop. She was sent away. and She gave the boy up for adoption. She ended up with another guy. They had a daughter together, Melanie. Okay. Danny goes to military. Dates another girl. They get married in 1969. He's deployed to Germany. He adopts her kid. She's all flower power, and he's not flower power at all. And eventually they argue. He forbids her from leaving the house. He gets paranoid. They have a baby, but she goes home to the States. When he's honorably discharged, he follows. And one night while she's running a bath, they argue over nothing, basically. And he says, you fucking bitch. I'll fucking kill you. But he doesn't say it. He yells it. Right. Lifts her up, throws her into the bathtub with all her clothes on, and she files for divorce. Because she's a woman who knows to leave. Right. And by 1973, he's back with Denise again in Manchester. Okay. And they get married. And they have two kids, Caroline and Audrey. And Danny adopts Melanie. And they create a welding company together, Danny and Denise, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all good, right? Yeah. No, it's wrong. <laughs> and seven years later, Denise files for divorce. And Danny says no. And he calls her constantly. And he begs and he threatens. But that doesn't work because it usually doesn't. And one day he goes to Denise's house and he's yelling and he wants his kids. He throws Denise on the couch. He covers her, mo- her mouth. He covers her nose with his hand. And the babies, who are just 10 two and ten months old are all there and then next day Denise gets a restraining order and in that same book by uh, Flynn and Lavoie they write a hearing on the divorce was slated for December 1980 the pressure was starting to get to Danny on the 2nd of November Denise got a phone call from a friend of Danny's is Danny there he asked urgently no why he told me he's not ready for a divorce and he's going to take care of things his own way. What did he mean by that? Denise asked nervously. He just bought a forty-five pistol. He says he's going to go over there and kill you and then kill himself. Denise called Danny and confronted him with this. Did you get a gun? She demanded. Yes, he told her. And when I see you, I'm going to shoot you. Mm-hmm. Denise hung up, called the police, and fled to her mom's house. Her mother took great delight in reminding her daughter what she said about Danny Paquette back when she, he was 16, that he wasn't anywhere close to good enough for her daughter. Sounds that way. Yeah. So the next day, while Denise is driving to work in a black, a black and white 1951 Ford pickup truck, pulls up alongside her on Elm Street, which is like the big drag in Manchester. Yeah. You cruise it back when we were young. And she knew that car immediately. I mean, truck immediately. It was Danny. And he yells, you motherfucking bitch. I swear to God, I'll kill you. And she doesn't know if he has like his 45 in his truck or whatever. So she takes off. She loses him. She goes right to the cops. And at his court hearing about all this, he actually lunges across the table during the sentencing, trying to get to the judge. (laughs) He has to be restrained by lawyers and the bailiffs. And he goes to jail. And then that's when he was sent to the mental hospital, which at the time I think was called New Hampshire Hospital. And he spends a year there, and it's not a good place, right? Right. When he gets out, he pays $75 a week for child support. He has weekend visitation rights. And a couple of years later, he goes to pick up the kids at Denise's apartment, and they are gone. He never sees any of them again. 
Vanished. Because they've run off to Alaska. Whoa. Just, just to get away from home. Good job. Uh, yeah, like, it's a Sounds big... like a real idiot. Well, I don't know. You know, he's not here to tell us his side of the story, but if the newspaper reports and this book accounts are right, he had a lot of troubles, right? Yes, he did. So, by now, it's 1985, and this is a little bit of my story again, because I grew up in New Hampshire, right? Um, And I can remember my mom on the phone gasping. Like, with her hand to her heart. Because, again, my mama was drama. Um, oh, that would be a good picture book. My mama was drama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. Oh, oh my, my gosh. God. That's awesome. All right. <laughs> you know that's awesome. Yeah. All right. So, um, anyways, like, my mom is drama, but she's adorable, right? And I still don't know who she was actually talking to on the phone. But probably her mom, Rena, um, because they talked every single night. And when she hung up, she staggered onto our yellow couch in the living room. And she just sort of collapsed there very melodramatically. And her eyes were blank. And she goes, they killed him. And she's like staring right through me. And I remember being like, who, who, who? As I knelt in front of her trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Because I was just this little kid, right? And she's like, I can't believe they killed him. And I'm like. And she's like, Danny. And I was really young, so I thought she meant Danny Alexander, my best fishing buddy from Massachusetts, who I'd hang out with at Lake Winnipesaukee. But she quickly explained, thank God, that it was not my bestie, but it was actually some grown-up Danny, an adult that I had never even met. And she said, he'd had such a bad time, such a bad time. And then she basically just shoved me off to go play outside. And she headed back to the phone, and I tried to, like, because that's the kind of kid I was but that's the same day that we were talking about before with the when Danny died so on November 9th 1985 Danny Paquette's outside his house he's tinkering on his bulldozer and he gets shot yeah it's like there he is you know and the only clues that they have are the bullet that made its way through poor Danny's body and they find it finally in a telephone pole Wow. And the footprints, they think, of the killer as he took off. The police thought that it might have been a hunter in a gravel pit who accidentally hit Danny. But the pit was over a mile away. Wow. And it wasn't a clean shot. That would have been a straight shot. And there were a lot of things in that line between Danny and the the gravel gravel pit. pit. Yeah, right? Obstructions. Yeah. So nobody can figure out. Like, they're like... Who could it be? Like, some people think that it's related to that Rena and Edward Coolidge story somehow, right? Like, yeah. maybe Coolidge had somebody get revenge on the family finally. Um, Danny's brother, Victor, worries it might have to do with him because he's kind of a bit of a rough-and-tumble guy who mixes with some, at that time, some less savory type yeah and like maybe someone's seeking revenge on him by killing him his brother some people are like yeah it's his girlfriend's kids <laughs> right right so for almost two decades there's no break in this case yeah and for almost two decades a ton of people in town know exactly who killed danny Puckett. really yep and for two decades no one talked until they did. And the story about Danny's death finally 
came out. Right? Who killed them, baby? Well, apparently. Do you remember (laughs) when I talked about Melanie? No. Alright, so when Danny married his high school sweetheart, Denise, she had had a daughter with somebody else, Melanie. Yeah. And Danny Paquette she had a daughter. He had had a daughter. No, they. He had had two kids. Right. With the woman, the flower power. Oh, lady. she had a daughter with some another dude. Yes. That was Melanie. Denise and Danny went out in high school. Right. She got pregnant. Her parents sent her away. She gave up the baby for adoption. Mm-hmm. She got married to this other guy. Eventually, they have a baby, and that baby's Melanie, right? Okay. Then she marries Danny, mm-hmm. and they have two more kids. And he adopts her. Yes. And they go and visit, you know, the kids, once they're divorced, go over to Danny's house and visit. And Melanie tells her mom at some point, I don't want to visit Danny anymore because she says and alleges that Danny was molesting and raping her as a little kid. Yeah. So there is no way to prove that. Right. But that is... Very important to this whole entire case, right? Okay. So, as it says in the Boston Globe, I think, um, a lot of this whole entire case is focused on his alleged abusive personality, right? Right. And it's alleged that he started raping Melanie Cooper when she was 10. Yeah. And he said, she said that he killed pets in front of her. And that she tried to kill her mom, Denise, right? Mm-hmm. Which they do have, like, some court records about that part, right? Right. Um, so they all have gone off to Alaska as kids, right? Like, the whole family. Denise just takes them. Right. But Melanie misses New Hampshire, and she wants to come back. So Melanie comes back and stays with an aunt and uncle. Okay. But they don't tell Danny Paquette. Right. So she's in high school now. She's an amazing soccer player. She plays with the boys team. Oh, really? Yeah, and she's very, very good. And on the boys team is another guy, is like this kind of cool, popular guy that she. some accounts say she had a crush on and some say she didn't. And his name is Eric Windhurst, right? Right. And so um, eventually, like, she, like, after she's moved in with her aunt, Kathleen McGuire, who ends up being the state prosecutor. Yeah. And is now a superior court judge. Like, they, she comes back and all hell breaks loose. And that's a really key part yeah. of the story of Danny Paquette that we're going to continue next week. All right. Because it's so long and so big, right? Is there a lot more to it still? I think that to do it justice, yeah. he's got to be a two-parter, man. Cool. Yeah, but it's... Whew. I'm down with it. Are you sure you're down with it? Hell yeah. Are you thinking any things? No. No? Nope, All right. Because it's a really, really interesting case. It sounds like it is. Yeah, but, you know, it's hard because, you know, you have so many allegations that you can't prove so it sometimes feels weird talking about it right do you know what i mean I do. but we're gonna continue on and we're gonna tell you the court cases and the newspaper stuff and you can make your own decisions that sounds like a great plan baby thanks You're thanks welcome. for listening yes thank you for listening yeah yeah stay safe very oh and like subscribe and all that stuff oh like subscribe and share and share <laughs>
Hey, thank you for listening to Dude No. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. And tell all your friends what a goofy couple has this podcast and how good it is to listen to. Be kind. Be kind. Be kind. Yes. Thank you.